0: I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. uh, The program is a partnership with the Longevity Foundation and the Cancer Care um, Connect Education Workshop, and the topic of today is Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, What's New? And This is part of a series that we're doing on non-small cell lung cancer. And today's program is supported by Regeneron, Sanofi Genzyme, Borentia-Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Decada Oncology, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have over 255 participants on today's program. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. We also happen to have a number of international participants from Canada, Dominican Republic, India, Kenya, Malaysia, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well today. And um, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. And um, before um, I introduce our first speaker, we're just going to ask you each a few questions, just to get a sense of what you know Coming into the program today, and so I'm going to, and it really helps us to um, to better plan these programs going forward. So our first question today is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow up care for non small cell lung cancer, and one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions and will be able to respond to them. Thank you. And the next question is I understand the importance of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer therapies for non small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of biomarkers and precision medicine in informing treatment choices for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. This will be the last question. Understand the role of clinical trials for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Well, I want to thank everyone for uh, participating in these questions, responding to them. Um, it really will help us as we move forward in planning future programs on this topic. And now it's really my great pleasure introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler. Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler will be addressing non-small cell lung cancer treatment, including current standard of care in the context of COVID-19 the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and new ways to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawler.
2: Well, hello, and thank you, Carolyn. I'm uh, Dr. Richard Grohl. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center and Jacoby Medical Center here in New York. I have the pleasure of starting off this program, which will discuss many aspects of What's New in Lung Cancer? We're fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call. I'll introduce several issues concerning lung cancer as we see it today, and my colleagues will focus more on key issues, including newer treatment concepts in this cancer. First of all, among the things that are new is the complication of COVID-19 as this program is being presented in November, 2021 all of us are aware of the greater or lesser presence of COVID-19, depending on our specific location and community. Unfortunately, there are several reports that indicate at least a doubling of negative COVID outcomes, including death in people who have lung cancer. I cannot overemphasize the crucial importance of vaccination with the life-saving vaccines now available for people with lung cancer and for those close to these individuals. All with lung cancer should now have their booster vaccinations if you are six months or more since completing the uh, vaccination process initially. Also, consider accessing the cancer care programs dealing specifically with COVID and cancer, which are quite available online in the cancer care archives. Related and new is the way that all oncology units have gone to remarkable lengths to enhance safety for your visits. So communicate closely regarding visits or televisits, treatment and testing. Your, tr- your team has your best interests firmly in mind. Televisits remain a good idea for some of us with cancer, for some of the visits. All oncology facilities have become increasingly skilled over the last year or so with televisits. Often these are done with video chats using various electronic platforms, but if that's not easy for you, just the phone can often work. Clearly many visits are better done in person, but you should feel free to discuss your own visits and care, televisits or in person, with your care team. Either way, As with any visit, always have your questions ready, your medications available, and any other relevant information. Just a few decades ago, lung cancer was seen as a malignancy that affected mainly men. And other than a smoking history and exposure to some toxins, such as asbestos, few other factors were then seen to be of significance. Today, lung cancer occurs in just about the same number of women as men. Great changes in our understanding of lung cancer and of major illnesses in general have rapidly occurred. We now know that many genetic, lifestyle, ethnic, and environmental factors have an impact on the risk of lung cancer, the type of lung cancer, preventive approaches, and even treatment of this very common and difficult malignancy. Major treatment advances are closely related to this enhanced understanding and will be discussed by our fine panel. It remains true that tobacco exposure, primarily first-hand smoking, is responsible for 80 to 90 percent of lung cancer. Smoking avoidance, that is prevention of smoking, or cessation, is a key strategy. But since lung cancer is so common worldwide, even the 10 to 20 percent of cases among non smokers, account for very large numbers of people. But before we talk about treatment, another newer aspect of lung cancer is the clear evidence that screening for this cancer by using a quick low dose CT scan in higher risk individuals, those with a smoking history, saves lives. If you or someone close to you without lung cancer falls into this group, please ask your healthcare provider about this painless, easy, and fast test, which is covered by most insurance plans. Lung cancer is divided into two basic types, small cell or non-small cell, but there are further divisions within these types, especially within non-small cell lung cancer and non-small cell is the topic for our program today. In non-small cell lung cancer, the two most common types are adenocarcinoma, and squamous cell or epidermoid carcinoma. While these designations are not new, genetic and immunologic specification within these two types are indeed newer and important. These will be addressed shortly and and you should be aware that they help guide treatment. Once a diagnosis of lung cancer is made, it's important to know the extent of the problem, that is the stage of lung cancer. We generally think of four stages in non-small cell lung cancer. The first two are the more localized stages, stage one and two. Stage one includes a smaller tumor confined to the lung. Stage two, a similar tumor, but with the local lymph nodes in the root of the lung also involved. When lung cancer is detected in the earliest stages, it is highly curable, especially by surgery and by radiation therapy in some people. Newer techniques in both surgery and radiation therapy have allowed for much easier treatment. It is not the scope of today's program to talk in detail about surgical approaches in early-stage lung cancer, but please be aware that there's been a great deal of progress in thoracic surgery as well, including the widespread availability of VATS or video-assisted thoracic surgery in appropriate patients, of enhanced safety measures, of improved ways of preventing post-operative pain, and shorter recovery period for many patients. New radiotherapy techniques are major advances, and I'll look forward to the discussion of this and other radiation therapy issues by Dr. Rosenzweig soon in this program. More widespread lung cancer involves stages 3 and 4. Stage 3 is considered to be locally advanced, typically meaning that the lymph nodes in the mediastinum, the area between the two lungs, are involved with the cancer in addition to the primary tumor in the lung. Stage four is seen as the spread of the tumor beyond the lung or the finding of pleural fluid around the lung, all indicating metastatic disease. Treatment of stage four and frequently of stage three often uh, requires a systemic treatment, that can treat the whole body, and that includes chemotherapy or newly molecularly targeted treatment or newer immune treatments or combinations of these three approaches. Dr. Halmos will discuss these newer approaches and will emphasize the key role of genetic testing in lung cancer, which refers to a newer concept called precision medicine, which focuses on factors affecting a particular individual's lung cancer and may strongly guide treatment. This has helped guide us to very specific and differing treatments for different people. Clear improvements in treating patients with more advanced lung cancer have dominated treatment thanks to a better understanding of how to treat diverse and different individuals. As just mentioned, we now refer to treatment that affects the whole body as systemic treatment. It may focus on what are called molecular therapies guided by individual genetically determined factors, or new immune therapy or immune therapy with, uh, with chemotherapy in addition. All of these are guided by individual factors and often by genetic analysis specific to the individual, as will be addressed by Dr. Halmos. Also, marked improvements in preventing side effects of all of these treatments have occurred which can have a great positive effect on quality of life and making treatment more compatible for many patients and families. Even these quality of life approaches can differ by some specific patient factors. In brief, nausea and vomiting can be completely prevented in most individuals, or at least greatly lessened, and hair loss can often be avoided. My colleagues will focus on some of the prominent treatment areas that I have mentioned, and I'll really look forward to their presentations. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner. Carolyn?
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gralla. That was an outstanding, really, um, introduction to the call, setting the stage for today's program, uh, covering so many important topics. And um, I should let all of you know that we will be doing another program on uh, COVID-19 itself um, in, in February. So that please stay tuned um, and uh, look forward to um, all of you listening to that program. Um, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Dr. Grella. Um, And our next speaker is Dr. Balaz-Hamos, and Dr. Hamos is Director of Thoracic Oncology, uh, Director of clinical Care can- Clinical Cancer Genomics, Montefiore Medical Center. And Dr. Hamos will be addressing how genomics, biomarkers, precision medicine inform treatment choices, the role of targeted cancer therapies, chemotherapy, and new treatment approaches, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Halmos.
3: Thank thank you so much, Dr. Messner and uh, Dr. Grello for the invite, and so nice to be um, in in, in this uh, meeting with uh, old colleague and friend Dr. Rosenzweig as well, who was just nominated to be a hero for for lung cancer, uh, I believe, this week, so congratulations. uh Dr Gralla mentioned biomarkers and molecular genetic testing, and i'm I'm in clinic today and I, I thought i would I would just you know start my conversation with actually bringing in a, a case uh an elderly frail patient we saw just a couple of days ago I came in with a new diagnosis of advanced lung cancer, and her family uh you know decided not to pursue any treatment options uh, but still were willing to come in for a discussion as to you know what we would propose. And, you know, if we discussed the options that we could potentially offer, they ultimately agreed to at least running some biomarkers just in case we could find a treatment that could match, uh, you know, this, this lovely elderly patient's profile. And lo and behold, just running, uh, you know, a blood test, a simple test, as of today we just learned that you know this particular patient is actually a perfect match for a new medicine that thanks to the clinical research that Dr. Grella also mentioned now is available. And this medicine comes in a pill form. It's as easy to take as it can be and you know, can be highly, highly successful for the right patient. And the fact that we can have these conversations today in patients where in the past maybe treatment could not have been appropriate started about fifteen years ago. When when we discovered a particular subset of patients with lung cancer, especially uh, younger patients, women who uh, did not smoke, they had a particular biomarker identifying their cancers as very sensitive to uh, what's called EGFR targeting agents. Their cancer carried a particular mutation of this EGFR gene that basically just drove the cancer, and we were able to shut it down with the right medicines. Uh, basically, mandating from that on for clinicians to search for this particular biomarker to make sure that we offer our patients the best precision oncology medicine, in that case, an EGFR targeting medication. Uh, very soon afterwards, we also learned that patients can become resistant to some of these medicines and the reason they become resistant can also be understood by this biomarker research you know, that we conducted at the time. So at the time of resistance, maybe there's a second change. So it's like if you take the same antibiotic at one point, the infection you know, will become resistant. And learning about this second change allowed us to redesign our molecules, our treatments, so we can redesign the key to fit the keyhole again. And this was just the first discovery EGFR that I mentioned, occurring in about 10% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Since that time, we've uh, discovered generation and generation of agents that can help patients with this EGFR mutation, but also new and new generations of targets. So by now, we have nine very specific biomarkers that we can search for to match patients to these uh, many times very effective and quite well-tolerated um, molecular medicines, precision oncology, oncology medicines. As you can imagine, though, uh, more and more of uh, the need for testing uh, puts puts a lot of pressure on the physician to, um, you know, to, 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 to do more and more biopsies, to take more and more tissue. But you, each and every biopsy is, uh, you know, potentially risky. So we had to develop the best platform so we can utilize the smallest amount of tissue to give us the best answers. And this is what now comprehensive molecular profiling can offer through special technology called next-generation technology. But the name is mi- misleading. It's not next generation. It's, it's really this generation, our generation's technology that we can offer to our patients every day. And not just that, we've also improved our platforms so sometimes we don't even need to take a tissue biopsy. We can just test blood samples very simply because we learned that cancers can give us smoke signals in a way that now we can, we can detect from the circulation. And those smoke signals can lead us to, to proper treatment in many cases, such as the patient I described who otherwise was not willing to take a tissue biopsy or consider toxic treatment options. So nowadays we have better platforms and better treatments to offer precision medicine, but we've also witnessed the second revolution just the last five to seven years. And that came from the understanding that most of the cancers that, you know, we encounter contain a lot of foreign looking material. And of course our immune system has developed to uh, recognize, you know, foreign material and attack it and eliminate from, from the body. Uh, How come that the immune system is not able to eliminate cancer cells? Well, we've learned that the cancer cells are also outsmarting the immune system in a way by hijacking a natural mechanism whereby our body avoids the immune system turning against our own, something called checkpoints. These checkpoints can be turned on by the cancer cells, and these checkpoints being activated, they serve like a taser gun. They inactivate the incoming immune system. The recognition of this battle between the immune system and our cancer cells uh, led to the recognition that we can uh, impair that interaction, block that interaction by the development of what's called immunotherapy, leading to well-deserved Nobel Prizes just three years ago. And now these immunotherapies we can use in clinic for our patients, and we can again use biomarkers to identify which cancer has that particular checkpoint activated to the point that some of these medicines might be so active that maybe we do not need to pair them with chemotherapy, but even in patients where maybe the biomarker is not as strongly positive, a combination, a proper combination of uh, standard chemotherapy and immunotherapy can outperform chemotherapy alone. So practically by today, Almost all of our patients with a new diagnosis of advanced non-small-cell lung cancer will either be receiving precision oncology-type medicines called targeted medicines, or they will be receiving some checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapies activating the immune system to do a better job, either alone or in some form of combination with chemotherapy, yielding much, much better outcomes and opening new horizons for our patients. And we've also witnessed that now these medicines, both the targeted medicines and the precision oncology medicines, are brought to earlier stages of disease. when we actually have a chance for cure of you know, our patients, and now we can improve these chances by the addition of these medicines uh, in, in, in the, uh, the right patient, right patient profile. And we're developing biomarkers to identify, again, the proper matches and the uh, proper situations where we can use these medicines the most successfully. Now, of course, quality of life remains a very important aspect of of, uh, managing our patients the best. And again, the good news here is that both targeted therapies and immunotherapies have better safety profiles than, you know, what you might have heard about in terms of conventional cancer medicines, such as chemotherapy medicines. Still, there are certainly new chapters to learn as to how to properly uh, manage the side effects of targeted medicines, many times including things like diarrhea or skin rashes. But we have very good ways of managing those uh, to the best effect. And immunotherapies, which now can overactivate the immune system, not just to attack the cancer, but to turn against our own body as well. But just the last few years, we've learned so much about how to recognize these side effects and how to manage them that the quality of life of many of our patients can be very well maintained. So we've definitely seen two waves of, of, of a massive revolution as to how we can manage our patients the best way with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And we want to continue to invest into biomarker development and new you know, medication development through good clinical research so that we can improve the chances of our patients even better in the future. And I think I'll, I'll stop there, and hopefully I'll be able to address some some questions later on.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Homos. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful review of all the treatments that are available and just all the new things. And all the example you started with was really very um, inspiring, I think, to many of our participants to hear um, that treatment was available. And what sometimes people expect for treatment is very different than what a physician can offer in terms of, Um, minimal um, side effects and really managing the the patient's cancer very well. So thank you. Excellent. I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. And Dr. Rosenzweig is um, professor and chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, system chair, Mount Sinai Health System, and Dr., um, Rosenzweig also is um, cure magazine twenty twenty one lung cancer hero, and so uh, nominated for that, and uh, so congratulations, dr. Rosenzweig. And Dr. Rosenzweig will be addressing the role of radiation of radiation oncologist in treating non-small cell lung cancer, including types of radiation treatments. How clinical trials contribute to treatment options. Guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig.
4: Hi, thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, for that very kind introduction. Um, So I'm very lucky to follow up after uh, two excellent speakers. So I can just uh, add on to what they said, Um, and like. Dr. Grawler mentioned for early stage lung cancer, uh, there have been a lot of improvements in um, how we use radiation therapy uh, to cure that. So by early stage, uh, we mean a tumor that's in the lung that hasn't spread anywhere. Um, so traditionally, um, these tumors uh, are resected, you know, there's surgery for them, but some people are unable to tolerate surgery because they have lung problems or heart problems or other medical issues. And radiation is a very effective way to take care of them. And really, in about the past 10 to 15 years, a new technique has developed. Um, It has two different names, uh, stereotactic body radiation therapy, or SBRT, or stereotactic ablative body radiation, S-A-B-R. Both names are equivalent. Um, I'm sorry, it's just confusing out there in the literature for that. And this is a way where the radiation can be very focused just on the tumor and not damage any of the surrounding normal tissue. So it delivers a dose of radiation to the tumor, uh, shields the normal tissue, and that's enough to um, uh, destroy the tumor and uh, cure the patient of their lung cancer. And this has been a a very effective technique, and it's in use uh, pretty much at every clinic uh, uh, these days. And it's really ideal for uh, lung cancer. So it's been really a a complete sea change in in how we address and treat early-stage lung cancer. Uh, For tumors where the, excuse me, for tumors that have spread to the lymph nodes, or what we call locally advanced lung cancer, uh, radiation is still a a mainstay of treatment, uh, but we can't use the um, high-dose methods that we use with stereotactic radiation we have to extend the treatment over a period of about 6 weeks and uh almost always uh someone who has a locally advanced lung cancer is also going to receive chemotherapy at the same time so this can be a very involved treatment where people are getting you know chemotherapy in the morning and then going for their radiation treatment uh in the afternoon uh, the radiation is every day you know Monday through Friday for 6 weeks but the chemotherapy tends to be just a few days during the entire course of treatment, uh, depending which chemotherapy drugs are being used. It could be a few times a week, every third week, or, or one day a week uh, uh, each week. Um, and, the, the you know, this is a very effective treatment as well, and it, it does a very good job of uh, of taking care of the lung cancer there. There's a bit more side effects just because there's more parts of the body uh, you know, uh, being exposed to radiation. So uh, some people develop some difficulty swallowing during treatment, and and those side effects could be managed um, during the course of therapy. Um, And afterwards, and as the previous two speakers discussed, you know, immunotherapy has been shown to be very effective after chemotherapy and radiation for locally advanced lung cancer, And it's kind of a way for the immunotherapy to kill any cells that might be left behind in the body. And it's been showing to really help people live longer and and curing more people. So that just also in the past five years has been a very radical change in how we treat people. Uh, For situations where the tumor has spread outside of the lung or or metastatic lung cancer, uh, radiation is very effective uh, for taking care of any spots that are causing problems. So, for example, if there's um, an area of cancer um, in a bone and it's causing uh, bone pain, then we typically give radiation to that area uh, to palliate the symptoms of the bone pain. Uh, if there are any tumors in the head, we can sometimes give very um, uh, focused radiation treatments similar to the stereotactic treatments I just described in lung, but do them in the head just to um, some of the small spots to to get them under control. So that's a, another uh way to effectively uh take care of uh th- those problems. But not not every spot uh needs radiation, so it's really if if there's um um you know, a spread of cancer that's causing a symptom, then we typically wanna uh use the radiation. But if it's not causing any problems then systemic therapy um uh, like Dr. Halmos was describing um is is definitely the mainstay of treatment. Uh, there's another type of radiation um, that you might have heard about, and there, you might have seen uh, advertisements for, called proton radiation. Uh, so this is um, a special form of radiation where uh, where most radiation after it goes through the tumor, it uh, slowly peters out on the way outside out of the body. Uh, for proton radiation, it um, stops immediately past the tumor. So this is very effective uh, for tumors that are near uh, very critical structures. So um, for people with um, brain tumors that's near the um, eye or the nerve that goes to the eye, um, it could be very valuable to uh, prevent blindness as a result of the radiation. Um, And for children where you don't want the, the child's body to be exposed to radiation if they have a childhood cancer, it's also extremely effective and and pretty much a standard of care these days. Um, Protons definitely have a role in lung cancer, but not for every patient with lung cancer. So certainly in situations where someone might need a second course of radiation, protons uh, might be very helpful uh, to limit the side effects of it. Uh, But the typical um, type of of radiation is gonna be very effective Uh, for lung cancer, and you probably don't need uh, to travel to a proton center um, to get treatment there unless it's a special situation uh, with the lung cancer. Um, And that's something you can discuss uh, uh, with your doctor. And um, I was also asked to discuss clinical trials. So um, all of the advances we've been talking about today are the results of uh, clinical trials that were done in the past and a very brave patients who um, who agreed to be on these trials to try to advance uh, the care for, for their treatment, but also for future generations. And there are different types of clinical trials. So Some are trying a new therapy uh, for everyone who enrolls on the clinical trial. So, for example, trying a, a new medication, a, a new chemotherapy, a, a new immunotherapy, or a new way to do of the radiation, and then you just see how the whole group does and the The top type of clinical trial is what we call a randomized control trial where someone enrolls on it, and then you essentially flip a coin and if it's heads, you get the treatment if it's tails, um you don't get the treatment, and not getting the treatment I means just getting the standard the standard of care that you would have gotten anyway. And that's really the ultimate way to see if whether a new uh, treatment or new therapy is going to work to compare it as if you were just getting the regular uh, care that, that is the current standard of care. So I definitely encourage um, everyone on the call to discuss clinical trials uh, with their doctor because uh, almost every center will have some clinical trials open, and some of them uh, might be appropriate uh, uh, for your situation and, and can give you access to maybe some new medications that that can be very helpful for for your situation. And finally I just want to discuss telehealth, uh to add on to a little bit what Dr. Grala said. Um and you yeah, know just some general um uh advice is you know make sure all your connections work, uh make sure you're in a place uh where you're comfortable. Um I, I once was doing a telehealth visit with a patient and, and he was walking around and and I was getting a little dizzy, uh seeing the background uh change. So I think just sitting down with your face in the in the camera, so uh to be as uh as uh, normal of an interaction as we can get over uh telehealth and also I think one of the great advantages of telehealth is if you um want family members or friends to be there on the visit you know um they they can be all over the world and and sign in and be there too, and so to just to make sure all their connections work and that everyone's ready at at the time of the visit um, is definitely helpful. And just a final word on open notes. Um, So this is, you know, if if you do have access to uh, what the doctor's notes say, um, just be aware doctors speak in a very strange language in our notes, Um, there's kind of a medical ease there. and, And sometimes it's very difficult to understand or we, we use weird words, which might sound a bit accusatory, and, and it's just what's become traditional over the you know past 100 years. But if you have any questions about a note or what what the meaning is, you definitely should uh, discuss it with your physician. Um, but we do use a very uh, strange convoluted language, a lot of abbreviations. Um, so please don't be distressed or, or think we're trying to hide something from you. It's just become uh, the, the way we communicate in our notes over the years. And I think people are, are trying to be a little bit more plain spoken in their notes uh, uh, because more and more people uh, uh, are taking a look at them. Uh, so we'll see how that changes over the next few years. And again, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak, and I wish everyone a happy holidays.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was a wonderful presentation, just outstanding, and really um, covering all the different types of radiation uh, treatments and um, and also clinical trials and, of course, um, preparation for um, for telehealth visits, so thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairdon, and Ms. Bairdon is an oncology dietitian um, at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and Ms. Bairdon will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bairdon.
5: Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm so excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential, and um, it's very important that you um, are eating properly and taking in the proper hydration to help you not only do the things that you enjoy, but also tolerate your treatment as well as possible. Oftentimes there can be some modifications um, during your treatment, even after your treatment possibly, Um, and the goal for that is to manage your side effects to help you optimize your nutritional intake. So keeping your um, weight stable to making sure that you're getting enough protein and calories and fluid are all very important uh, in your tolerance to treatment and your outcomes. So some potential side effects that can happen um, during cancer treatment are things like dry mouth, possibly difficulty swallowing, there may be some changes in taste, possibly a decrease in appetite, and maybe an increase in fatigue. But um, connecting with your healthcare team is absolutely essential, and I always encourage patients to do this. Know your healthcare team. Know how to contact them. Um, there are many members of your healthcare team, and we're all here to help support you. The dietitian specifically can help with modifying. Tech- um, as needed for you to tolerate your diet better. They can also help provide you calorie and protein goals, help you find foods that will be more um, appropriate for what your specific health care needs are. Each one of us are very unique, and the foods that are best for us may change just based on other health issues that we're dealing with in, in conjunction with the cancer. And so asking to meet with your dietitian is completely appropriate. And um, there may be some times where they um, discuss maybe a, a- an oral drink, a supplement to help if you're having trouble with getting enough nutrition in with whole foods, um, and that's appropriate as well. Although I always make sure to let patients know eating whole foods is really the first first line, and it's really the best way to nourish ourselves, but we do want to make sure that the ultimate goal is for you to avoid weight loss. And the reason why that's so important is because when you're going through cancer treatment, if you're starting to lose weight, oftentimes it can um, impact your lean muscle mass, which is the muscles that help us breathe, help us swallow, help us get up and move around and do the things that we enjoy. And so maintaining your weight is really in an effort to preserve that lean muscle mass. So talking with your healthcare team about meeting with your dietitian can help you um, just ensure that you feel comfortable with that information. Now there are medications to help with side effects. I always recommend that patients talk with their healthcare team as soon as they notice a change um, in the way that they're tolerating their diet, any new symptoms that arise. And always talking with the healthcare team sooner than later is better. That way we can help you more quickly and, and alleviate any additional stress or side effects um, that, that could continue to become more, uh, more present. Um, hydration sometimes gets lost in the mix when we're talking about eating. So I always like to take a moment just to set this aside. Um, dehydration can be um, a side effect from from the treatment itself um, or just from poor appetite and less intake. And so dehydration can actually increase nausea, increase fatigue, make you feel dizzy, lightheaded, and getting in a fluid in each day is so important. Each person on average needs between eight and ten eight ounce glasses of fluid a day. And a fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, such as milk, water, sports drinks. Um, Jews, um, and so understanding what your unique needs are are also very important. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you and making sure that you have what you need in order to be as successful as possible during your cancer therapy, and so please know them to reach out to them, and the sooner you reach out to them, the better. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's presentation. Carolyn, I'm going to hand the line back over to you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Bearden. That was wonderful. Just a very informative presentation and something for everyone to keep uh, keep aware of and to uh, meet with your dietician when you're undergoing treatment. Thank you so much, even before and after as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Amy Moore. And Dr. Moore is Vice President, Global Engagement and Patient Partnerships Longevity Foundation. And Dr. Moore will be addressing Longevity Foundation's programs and services and the Longevity um, the Lung Cancer Helpline um, and website as well and giving you information about how to access resources from them. It's really my great pleasure. And we are also partnering with um, the Longevity Foundation on this entire lung cancer series on, and all the programs we do on lung cancer. And so it's really my great pleasure to announce this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Moore.
6: Thank you, Carolyn, and it's an honor to be with this esteemed panel today. So Longevity is the nation's leading lung cancer nonprofit, and we are changing outcomes for people with lung cancer through research, education, and support. Longevity initiatives position us as thought leaders in the lung cancer advocacy community, providing programs and driving change for those with lung cancer today and in the future. People impacted by lung cancer can get help navigating their cancer from our website, our Lung Cancer Helpline, and from survivor and caregiver mentors who've been where they are, our peer-to-peer lifeline support program connects lung cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers to mentors to get and give advice, encouragement, and hope. We have virtual patient Zoom meetups four times a week, where multiple pa- uh, private patient and caregiver groups online, and we provide multiple ways for people to get involved in the fight against lung cancer. We also have online groups for different oncogene or biomarker types, as well as for those diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. We also have multiple in person events across the country to educate and support patients at the community level. And just last week, we launched our lung cancer patient gateway, starting with the KRAS gateway. These are really one stop shops where patients and caregivers can find information about their lung cancer subtype, find a specialist, learn about clinical trials, connect with their community read the latest news, and find events. And as Dr. Helmos mentioned, biomarkers and knowing your biomarker is critically important for ensuring optimal outcomes in lung cancer. So Longevity is proud to have launched our November campaign where we encourage you to know your biomarker. And that's part of our broader No One Missed campaign to make sure that everyone knows about the importance of comprehensive biomarker testing in lung cancer. So as we're in Lung Cancer Awareness Month, I just want to remind everyone that anyone with lungs can get lung cancer, and we want patients and their families to know that they don't have to go through this alone. So please visit our website, www.Longevity.org, or call our helpline at 844-360-5864 to get connected. Again, thank you for the opportunity to highlight our support services. And please reach out if we can be of a assistance. So I'll turn it back over to you, Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful resource to everybody on the call, all the different resources you mentioned. And I should mention to everybody that after today's program, you'll all be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation. Probably we'll get that tomorrow. And in that, um, a- Evaluation. There also will be all the resources that we mentioned today, and even some extra ones that we want to be sure that you have. But certainly, all the resources that Dr. Moore mentioned will be um, in your SurveyMonkey, so you'll be able to access them and and make use of this wonderful organization that we have the privilege of partnering with um, on many of our programs. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'm just going to say a few words about uh, CancerCare's free programs and services, and then um, we're going to um, um, before and then. I'll move on, but I just want to say I'm Carolyn Bester. I'm Director of Education Training with Cancer Care. And I want to address with all of you just the free services you can access from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization. It's been around for about 75 years. And we offer a host of services offered primarily by oncology social workers, about 40 oncology social workers, who staff our hopeline. And um, who contact, you can call Cancer Care or you can visit our website to access just support from and guidance from our oncology social workers. In addition, we offer online support groups. We offer practical and financial assistance. Um, We also have um, a case management unit, um, and they actually help tremendously with people getting resources that they may not be able to access from cancer care and from their own local communities, and we will help them, we'll help to connect them with those resources, really connecting them virtually so we don't just give you a list of places to call. We actually call or go with you um, to their websites and be sure that you're connected and your needs are met um, before we Say okay. Now you've got that need met. Is there anything else we can help with? Um, we also offer these workshops, and we also offer a number of publications as well. Um, so that um, there's quite a bit of information you can access from us. So um, um, and now before we move on to the Q and A, we're going to just ask you a few questions, and then we're going to um, um, and then we're going to actually go on to our. Um, the Q&A with all of our speakers. So I'm going to start with our first question. And again, those of you who are live streaming the call today will be able to answer these questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care, new treatment approaches, and follow-up care for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer therapies for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of biomarkers and precision medicine in informing treatment choices for non-small cell lung cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to ask questions and work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for non-small cell lung cancer. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for non-small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. And now we have time for questions from all of you to our speakers. And so I'm going to um, ask Norma, to bring all of our speakers on board, and um, we're going to, um, and Norma, if you could explain to people how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So we have again, a question ask the
1: question, just press star 1. And we have a question in front of our online participants. A um, uh, so patient with non-small cell lung cancer, stage 4, PEMBRO, since August 2018. I was never able, never, never was, never, I never was able to check with mutations. Should I ask for it? PEMBRO or is working very well. All tumors from liver disappeared. Is there any proposal for checking things? Dr. Growler and Dr. Hamos, would you like to address this question?
2: Well, uh, it's a very interesting point, but I would say that if, and I take it by PEMBRO, you mean PEMBrolizumab, um, that if uh, you are responding well to this, then that is probably the driver of your cancer that is the immune uh, therapy aspect. And I'm assuming that pembrolizumab is the only treatment you're currently on. And if that's so and if things are going very well, then uh, I think I would stay with it and probably would not see uh, the need to do, a molecular, uh, uh, to do a molecular testing at this time. I would assume that you had PDL one testing, and uh, that uh, I would probably go that route upon relapse of the tumor, then I think that rebiopsy and molecular testing at that time might be called for. I'll be interested to see if Dr. Halmos has a different view.
3: Well, I I certainly don't. Uh, First of all, I'm I'm really thrilled to hear that you're doing so well on uh, pembrolizumab, and that, that likely suggests that uh, they, they ran some biomarker testing. Maybe the information wasn't, you know, shared in great detail and you fall into the category where this was an excellent match. Uh, nowadays, it's standard of care to run these biomarker tests. Again, I, I do think that most likely your doctors have done it. If not, it still is worth, you know, asking to make sure that, you know, they will do it at one point. Uh, at the same time, definitely continuing this medicine, which is still working so well is the right thing to do, and we're so glad to hear that you're doing so well.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, I hope that helps our, our participant. Thank you very much. Um, and a question for Dr. Rosenzweig. Does a negative chest X-ray mean that I don't have lung cancer?
4: Um, so chest X-rays are, you know, an excellent tool to, you know, evaluate what's going on in the lungs. They're, they're not as good as chest CTs, so i think you know most practitioners are using chest x rays to check for um if there's any uh, fluid around the lung or if any signs of pneumonia or if, or if there's an air leak in the lung after a procedure um you know uh, and uh, situations like that so really you, you, to to feel that to to have confidence that there is no evidence of a cancer um yeah, uh, a CAT scan is probably going to be ideal. And, you know, we talked about uh, screening CAT scans a little bit earlier uh, briefly. And, you know, so screening is usually with a CAT scan. Now, of course, a negative exam, um, you know, does, is, is not completely definitive because there could be a, a very, very small tumor below the level of detection. But I think a, a negative uh, screening CAT scan is going to give a lot of confidence that. Um, nothing is going on uh, right now and, and certainly nothing on the near horizon. Awesome. Thank you. I
1: um, have a question for Dr. Grawler. I'm about to start chemotherapy. Will I be able to continue working during my chemotherapy treatments? Probably Dr. Um, Dr. Um, Grawler and Dr. Halmos as well. But Dr. Grawler, if you'd like to start with this one.
2: Well, uh, that certainly is the goal. And uh, the whole reason for treatment is to keep you uh, as well as you can be and doing the things that you normally do. And uh, I think this is a wonderful question to discuss with your team. You may miss uh, a day or two here and there, and uh, many of our treatments take several hours to do. But uh, we do a much better job, as I mentioned before, on preventing nausea and vomiting and on uh, addressing many other aspects that are related to the administration of chemotherapy and to the other agents that my colleagues have been discussing. So discuss this with your uh, treatment team, ask them what are they doing, uh, should you what side effects should you expect and what are they doing to uh, lessen these you might be a little cautious around the first administration, see how it goes. And given that all goes well, then, uh, again, uh, pursuing uh, your normal activities is just what we would hope to do. But this is something, since we haven't discussed your specific chemotherapy, and that really isn't our role here, um, but um, I must say that my patients uh, who are working at the time when I meet them, that uh, the overwhelming majority return to their normal activities. And the better the treatment works, the, the higher the chance of continuing all those activities. So nice time to talk with your treatment team, and they should be able to give you some very reassuring answers.
3: Excellent. Now, Thank I you. That thanks to the work of, of people like Dr. Grella, who's been a champion in this field, you know, we have, we have better chemotherapies both in, terms, both, both in terms of their side effect profile, but also we have better supportive care to be able to, you know, maintain a good quality of life throughout treatment. Of course, each patient will, will be different, but the expectation should be to sustain a reasonable quality of life, even through aggressive chemotherapy.
1: Excellent. And a question from Ms. Bearden. Um so um, the question has to do with uh, um, does sugar play a role in fueling cancer and also the issue of is overeating sugar and carbohydrates problematic in cancer care? If you could comment on that. I think it's a frequent question that we're asked on these programs.
5: Yeah. Um, yeah, There's this is a, a very frequent question I get. So what we, I think, want to kind of turn around and think in, in a different way with eating is nourishing our bodies and thinking of food as nourishment, and um, protein, um, complex carbohydrates, plant-based foods, um, dairy products, et cetera, those are whole-based foods, uh, whole foods that give us a lot of nourishment, but everything that we eat ultimately on some level turns to sugar because that's what our body uses as fuel. Um, So you can never starve a cancer cell completely. You can never eliminate a food where a cancer cell will not be fed. Um, and so, what we do know is that nourishing our bodies is important, and maintaining our weight and keeping our lean muscle mass is—we know that that's effective—and um, our outcomes of cancer care. So, when we talk about sugar feeds cancer, it's—it's it's, it's a little bit of truth, and then a lot of misunderstanding and miscommunication. Um, processed foods kind of fall into that category. When you read about this topic, cakes, candies, cookies um real sugar those sorts of things Um, But those things are all okay to have in a balanced diet. Again, we want to eat a balanced diet where we nourish our body and not be fearful of eating food that's going to feed the cancer, because we cannot starve the cancer. Um, So definitely talk with your dietitian in your healthcare center who's working with your team um, so that they can give some more specificity to questions within your personal diet and and sort of what your recommendations are so that you can feel comfortable in understanding all of that clearly.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And the last question will be for Dr. Moore um, about um, the um, the many programs that the Longevity Foundation provides. Um, you mentioned um, one some that are um, actually having to do with um, patients um, being able to get together. If you could comment a bit more about that. Sure.
6: Um, What I was alluding to uh, is directly in reference to something we launched last week called Lung Cancer Patient Gateways, which can be found on our website at longevity.org. But there, we're planning to build out six different um, kind of patient portals, if you will. They're defined by biomarkers. So we have one that launched last week for KRAS. We will also launch gateways for EGFR for ALK, for general non-small cell lung cancer, for small cell lung cancer, and then for rare mutations. And on those, there is an opportunity to join a community. So we have a number of longevity Facebook groups, and there are a number of um, patient groups that have developed over time as the number of biomarkers has increased. So patients might be familiar with ones called the KRAS Kickers or the Ross Wonders or EGFR Resistors, so they can connect to those online patient groups. And then we also have a calendar of events of different um, opportunities for, for patients and caregivers to connect both virtually and in person. So there are multiple ways that patients can get plugged in with their peers and participate in events that will provide support and connection
1: oh thank you i want to thank i want to thank all of our speakers who've really been phenomenal um This has been an amazing amazing program and we could go on all afternoon because there are lots more questions in queue so I want to kind of address that but I first of all want to thank our speakers and i want to thank our participants as well for asking such really excellent questions and with many more um to be asked, so I, I I want to address that first of all. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who still have a question to ask, and for those of you who are now thinking of questions you'd like to ask, we ask you to go back to your treating healthcare team with your questions. They know you the best, and they can certainly address your questions. That's really very important. You also will have um, other resources provided to you in addition to your healthcare team. Certainly, the Longevity Foundation um, is a is a great organization to. Um, to contact, as well as cancer care for some of our supportive services. And your own health care team, your supportive services would be your healthcare team, as Susan pointed out, consists of many different disciplines who can help you. So most importantly, as we're about to conclude the call today, I would not want anyone to feel that you're alone in addressing, um, you know, um, your concerns or your worries. And also we did mention that, of course, And we're still talking about in the context of COVID, we will be doing a program specifically on COVID-19 in February of uh, 2022. So just to be aware of that, that's just a few months away, actually, and you'll be hearing about that as soon as it's all planned and put together. Um, however, um, you do want to be sure you work with your healthcare team around any issues that may be uh, in, in your particular community, since each part of the country, of course, is affected slightly differently, and then there's some general guidelines that apply to all of us. Um, but it is very tempting to feel alone sometimes with living with cancer, of course, with lung cancer, with any type of cancer. And it is also um perhaps people feel a little bit more alone because of the COVID context for people. So I want you to all know that you're part of a very large community of support out there, lots of resources for you to connect with, whether it be an online support group, um, a group through Longevity, the, the different groups that they're developing, um, one of uh, our, our cancer our care uh, circles or um, wellness uh, um, activities that we have um, or support groups. So just be aware that there's a lot of opportunities for you to connect with others. I want to thank you all for your participation today. I look forward to being on our next program, as part two of this series as well. Um, and uh, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This does conclude the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.